Black voices are making an impact this month and beyond. Keep listening to discover one of our favorite shows, courtesy of ACAST Recommends. There's a lot of misinformation out there, but the truth remains indisputable. I'm Dr. Rashad Ritchie, and every day I'll be bringing you a full dose of truth on my show, Indisputable. We cover criminal justice, social justice, politics, racism, police brutality, and everything in between. I even make space for conservative voices, but not before they step into the bullpen, where I debate them on their policy agenda. In January, I hosted They Called Him Radical, a special tribute to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It features myself, Senator Nina Turner, Ricky Smiley, and Sharon Reed. Together, we reflected on Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy, his real legacy, and considered what we can all do to continue to fight for a better world. Listen to Indisputable and They Called Him Radical on Apple Podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. Hello, welcome to Cover Your Eyes. Today we're talking about the movie Backdraft from 1991. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Holly. Good to see you. You too. So, Backdraft starring, how could you not say, William Baldwin. <laughs> I wanted you to say it. <laughs> okay. And Kurt Russell and Rebecca De Mornay and Robert De Niro. And Robert De Niro. Two and a <laughs> half months once again. <laughs> it's so funny because when I when I went to like find this movie and the picture for the preview is just Robert De Niro's face. And I was like, oh my God, I forgot he was even in this. Honestly. Okay. I'm gonna admit that. I was into Robert De Niro. That's clear. Yeah, for sure. Even, even at that time. Oh, totally. Wow. <laughs> you have like mature taste for. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, no, that's now. In grade school, I liked Kurt Russell. Oh, okay. That's but that's I mean. <laughs> because. <laughs> Although I feel like I was well on my way to Robert De Niro territory, <laughs> even at that age. <laughs> but no, so you know the computer wore tennis shoes? That's like an old Disney movie, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, so Kurt Russell was on a series of Disney movies when he was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And I just thought he was adorable. Yes. So I feel like if I had not seen those Disney movies and I just watched Kurt Russell in Backdraft, that I would have just been like, that's an adult man. Mm -hmm. But because I knew that he was the teenager in the Disney movies, I thought he was really cute as a kid. I think that's what happened with it. I can see that. Yeah, because I I was like, that's really weird that I was like in a... Kurt Russell because he's like a 40 year old man in this movie yeah but he's so cute though yeah (laughs) so who Um, did you have a crush on I mean William Baldwin oh my god (laughs) I he was like my ultimate crush I really don't think about him from if I think of like older 80s movies or like who I had crushes on I really don't think of him but then whenever I do See him or think of really just this movie that I'm like, oh my god, it takes me right back. He's so gorgeous. He has like a unique face. Mm-hmm. It's like Alec Baldwin, but taller and with like more character in his face. It's like if Alec Baldwin and James Franco had a baby. Mm-hmm. I don't want to mar the William Baldwin memory with anyone. <laughs> <laughs> James Franco. You know, they both have like kind of a curly smile. I think that's what what it is. Hmm? We're still doing it. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I remember you having a huge crush on Billy Baldwin when this movie came out. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we watched this movie a lot. (laughs) <laughs> I'm sure we did. <laughs> yeah. 
as as I was watching it, I was like, I remember this. Like, as I, I haven't seen it since probably 1993. Yeah, same. And I remembered practically everything. Like. Where I was like, oh, th- I think this is going to happen. And then oh. this is going to happen. <laughs> I was like, wow, I've seen this movie a lot. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was very intense in the background. And then also our friend Peggy, too. We were like both insanely into this movie. And I like read the book. I think they made a book based on the movie. I don't think there was like... <laughs> that they turned into a film. but. I still read the book. I mean, I was in grade school, so whatever. And I loved it. I don't know. I was just like obsessed with this movie. Did you have any realizations about your childhood obsession when you were watching it today? Yeah, when I watched it this time, I just felt like, yes, I still 100% agree with my fifth or sixth grade self, whatever it was. Like, mm-hmm. he so cute. <laughs> just like the bone structure mm-hmm. the like pouty lips I don't know and he just has like a little bit there's just something to him kind of always looks like he's about to laugh even when like bad things are happening right <laughs> he's like smirking constantly I don't know <laughs> I think that's what I mean about the curly smile I know <laughs> Well, that's okay. That's the Joker. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and Kurt Russell's adorable as always. And Robert De Niro looks fine. (laughs) He's not an ugly man. It's just funny because I remember thinking like Adcox or whatever, whoever, the guy that's bad. Well, he's kind of cute. I just remember thinking like, I thought this was just like an old man. Like when I watched it before. He was just, and Robert De Niro probably too. I was like, he's just an old man. But now I'm like, no, I guess they're actually fine. Well, like Robert De Niro, when I was little, I would see him and stuff. And sometimes I would see men and think like, I bet I'm going to like guys like that when I get older. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking that about him. But when he's in movies where he's terrible, he looks hideous because he's such a good actor. But when he's in movies where he's like a good guy, I just think he's really beautiful. And he's got those like twinkly eyes. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, he's a handsome man. It's funny. I feel like this is, besides Magnum P.I., this is really the first movie where I'm like, yes, I do find these men attractive. <laughs> Because all the other Hollywood hunk movies we've watched, I haven't really thought that. Mm-hmm. I've been kind of like, yeah, I'm not into this. Yeah. Um, I am known for having varied, interesting tastes. <laughs> Vincent Price. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wasn't like, oh, he's hot. I just sort of was like into him, you know. Don't backpedal now. Just own it. You thought Vincent Price was hot. <laughs> he wanted to twirl that mustache <laughs> yeah um yeah so i stand by my crush 100 percent. and um, then there's like a shower scene i was like yeah <laughs> I, I didn't remember that i must have been going nuts <laughs> that's why we watched it so many times <laughs> Just like full backle nudity of William Baldwin showering. Is this the the movie that made you a woman? (laughs) I don't know what movie made me a woman. The volleyball scene from Top Gun as her moment. I don't know a specific moment, but this probably, yes. So Steven and his brother, also known as Kurt and Billy. They are supposed to be brothers. They really don't look anything alike. Robert De Niro and Billy Baldwin look more related <laughs> than Kurt Russell. But that's beside the point. But he was he was talking and it seemed like what you were getting at the beginning of the movie was that Stephen, the older brother, 
Kurt Russell is telling Billy, you got to like play by the rules now, da da da. He's kind of given him this talk. And it just reminded me of like, is that I was like, is this going to be a setup where, where Steven is Iceman and mm-hmm. Billy is Maverick? Mm-hmm. But that's not really what happened. Yeah. That's but funny because be- I wrote down at the end, at one point I wrote down Maverick question mark. <laughs> that's <laughs> interesting. Yeah. At the beginning of Backdraft, you get these two little kids playing and you can kind of tell that they've got some kind of conflict, even as kids. The younger kid gets to go on the fire truck with his dad because they're going to a fire. The building explodes and the little kid is like, my dad is in this building that just exploded. They give him the helmet. They give this little boy, like, his dad's helmet. Cut to 20 years later. And I thought, how interesting, because in Legal Eagles, we start with a fire. The dad gets burned and dies. And then we cut to 20 years later. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I didn't even realize. (laughs) Yeah, right. There's not much else in common. Well, the first thing I thought, because the movie like opens on this little boy close up, dressed up in a fire outfit, like you said, and I was like, that little boy looks like Ron Howard, Opie from Andy mm. Griffith. I was like, this does not look anything like William Baldwin. Is this supposed to be small William Baldwin? Mm-hmm. They're missing the mark. And then I saw like Ron Howard's name pop up as the director. So I was like, oh, this must be like Ron Howard's son. And he just wanted to put him in there. Oh, Yeah. Looked up the name of the kid, and apparently it isn't Ron Howard's son. <laughs> and but I was like, he looks almost just like him. And otherwise, why did they pick this kid to play him that doesn't look like Baldwin? But that's all beside the point. Um, yeah, I feel like the casting director had facial recognition issues. <laughs> I think so too. He's like watching his father. They both like clearly admire their father. And then the father is played by Kurt Russell with like a mustache on. (laughs) (laughs) And um, he seems like a cool guy. Everyone looks up to him. And then the kid's like watching him and he watches his dad save the life of Adcox. Mm -hmm. And then because he pushed Adcox out of the way, he ended up getting in the way of the thing that fell. And then he got stuck in the explosion. So he sacrificed his life. And the kids saw him do that. Um, it was sad, yeah. And then so the picture of him holding his dad's helmet gets put on the cover of Life magazine. Mm-hmm. So he's like known as that little boy. And they're in Chicago, which is like a big town, but probably like a small town where they live. It seems like all the firefighters know each other. And so he has that like reputation all his life. And then at the beginning, we see that like, he's gone through a lot of different careers. Like he left town and he tried all these different things. Like he's trying to get away from that image and like the family tradition and the family burden. And then we find out that he did try out for the fire department before, but then he like quit early or left and then went and traveled and did all these jobs. Mm-hmm. And he came back like a few years later and then he tried again and he did make it. And he tried to bribe the people with like a case of scotch to get into the company. That's like the easiest company. But then his brother found out about it. His brother Stephen and was like, no, you're coming with me. And he switched it so that he could like watch him and keep an eye on him. Either to be nice and like take care of him because he's his brother or to give him a hard time because he thinks that he's like a fraud and he doesn't really deserve to be in the fire department. What do you think? Do you think it's a mix? I think it's a mix. If Steven had just let his brother do his own thing and be in that other company, Adcox might not have been caught at the end of the movie. And then there wouldn't have been that big fight in the during the fire and Steven would still be alive. So the mm-hmm. point of this movie is actually mind your damn business. <laughs> yeah (laughs) I think that was the point you're right (laughs) 
<laughs> it's got nothing to do with brotherhood or family or loyalty. It's just mind your own business. <laughs> yes, he would still be alive today if he had. Even though I basically knew what was coming, um, you know, most of the time, I still felt like nervous about things that were coming and like I could still feel my heart racing and like getting into it so I thought that was good I wasn't like oh my god how much time is left so that Mm -hmm. was cool because this movie is two hours and 17 minutes oh my god so I really felt like there was a lot of camaraderie in the fire station that Billy gets assigned to Brian I'll call him Brian there's another guy who joins the force or how do you I think it's a company? So Tim joins Brian at the same time in the company. Mm-hmm. And Tim is super jazzed about being a firefighter. He wants to be the absolute best. He is talking about how great Steven is. That's when you really realize that Brian and Steven are not close brothers. And Brian goes over to Steven's house and his nephew is outside and he's just like the nephew nephew gives him this death stare mm-hmm. and I was thinking stranger danger totally because that stare establishes that Brian hasn't been around for a long time because his nephew doesn't even recognize him mm-hmm. and he's like five or six Stephen tells Brian not to be late for his first day. So, of course, Brian's car doesn't start. Mm -hmm. And I was like, did Stephen, like, drive over there in the middle of the night and, like, take out a spark plug or something? (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) Maybe. They do like to mess with each other. I didn't even think of that. So that's kind of like a, the gist of the relationship mm-hmm. that I thought that as a possibility that he would like <laughs> prank his brother real hard. <laughs> so he had to walk and of course there's a fire. They're like leaving the station as he gets there and he jumps on one of the fire trucks. But one of the fire truck drivers, I think looks like Chris Farley's dad. Oh, my God. I wrote that down. I was like, Chris Farley? <laughs> His dad or one of his brothers or something. <laughs> like him. So we quickly learn that it's a really bad idea to park your car in front of a fire hydrant because the firefighters will take great pleasure in fucking it up. <laughs> yes. And then there's a guy hanging by a thread in this fire which is treacherous. He's only hanging on by one of the other firefighters hands. Mm -hmm. And he's just like, I can't make, I can't get up there. The guy who is his lifeline says, you go, we go. Mm -hmm. And I teared up a little bit. I I was like, I was like, that's what this movie is all about right here. I'm getting kind of like chills right now because it's very simple and it could be cheesy, but it felt like really good and genuine. Mm -hmm. It makes you feel, yeah, emotions. Just those words say like so much about their bond. Like look out for each other. Yeah. Just as a good movie. It's like really gets talked about very much and it's kind of forgotten. I feel like. Yeah. Good. It's just like this little capsule of goodness. There aren't a lot of movies really about just firefighters either. Are there? I don't think so. So either. I wonder if it's because it's hard to do the special effects. That's the thing is like, I was thinking of that, of how dangerous every scene is basically. Like there's legitimately fire everywhere. This isn't just CGI. Yeah. It's It's beautiful. And it is beautiful. And then I was like, oh my God, William Baldwin's face by firelight. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) His skin looks so good and his eyes glow and twinkle. But yeah, and like so many of the scenes, I was like, these guys are really doing it. Like 
And I looked whenever it showed stunts at the end and both of their names were in there. Like they did their own stunts for a lot of things, which I found impressive. And if they don't find, like, I don't blame them, especially with fire. It just seems so scary and unpredictable. I wouldn't do that. Yeah. I mean, their faces are their livelihood. <laughs> right. I'm for that. This is 1991. Like, mm-hmm. special effects weren't where they are now. Like, if they did mm-hmm. it now, it would all be fake. And there'd so- be no feeling to it. Mm-hmm. I'd just be like, ooh. In this movie, you get to hear the fire singing as it moves through the building and it's so beautiful. And I was like, this movie actually made me understand arsonists better. Mm-hmm. I know, which is probably not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> like, mm, I get it now. <laughs> You're going to turn into Ronald. who's played by Donald Sutherland. Who's like, Oh my- Locked up. I, or, or as I like to call him, flammable lector. Oh my god! <laughs> you made that up. You're like genius. I, I did. <laughs> when I, as soon as I said it, I was like, man, that's oh good. <laughs> that is so good. <laughs> that's so good. Yeah, yeah, we need to talk about the mannequin. Okay, so we're at the first fire. (laughs) Fire that William or Brian almost missed because his brother sabotaged his car so that he'd be late for his first day. (laughs) I was really feeling sympathy for him because I was like, this is so something that would happen to me. And then, of course, like you said, there's a fire like at that exact moment. It's like, (laughs) come on. (laughs) what really would happen to me too so he's out on his first fire and then he's got to like prove himself to his brother because he's got all this extra burden of like your dad was the best firefighter your brother's the best firefighter and his brother's always on his ass so that's like extra pressure and it's like a fire in a big garment district warehouse thing mannequins everywhere which makes it even scarier because it's like is that a person or is that a mannequin (laughs) <laughs> they're standing frozen then it's more obvious that it's a mannequin but if it were knocked on the ground <laughs> then you might be like oh. and then they could risk their life for nothing because it's really just a mannequin and so that's the scene where like everything's on fire the floor collapses and then the you go we go thing happens and Stephen is the leader and he's like telling his brother like stay by me like it's your first time to stick by my side. And so they're doing that for most of the time. But then at some point, Brian gets distracted and then he thinks he hears someone like calling. So he wants to go rescue them. So he goes off on his own and he gets like lured in. That's where you like really see the flames dancing and you hear the like, <sighs> the animal looked him in the eye. It did. It did. It got to his soul and it lured him in. And so he went and he was like, this is why I was called in here. There's a person and he rescues her. And so he runs outside and he's like, it's my first day and I'm doing it. I rescued someone. And he like looks all heroic on the stairs and the photographers are getting his picture. And then he gets down (laughs) to the paramedics and he's like, is she going to make it? And then they're like, I think it's too late for this one. And then they pop (laughs) And take her wig off and it's a mannequin. <laughs> and Brian's just like so deflated <laughs> and embarrassed. I was just thinking about how the newspaper finds out that Brian was the little boy on the cover of Life way back when and decided that that was a much better story than that he got a mannequin. So Tim, who actually did save a woman's life, gets no credit, and Brian gets credit for saving the woman's life, and there's no mention of the mannequin, and I was just like, hmm, maybe keep that in mind whenever you see news stories. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I thought it was a good example of, like, quote-unquote, harmless 
manipulation of information for like a better story. Exactly. Yeah. So they're at um, like a retirement party for another fireman. And when someone brings in the paper and they're like, look at this BS. Mm -hmm. And then, so it makes them kind of resentful towards Brian, but it's not his fault. Like he didn't do it, but he's just like stuck under that legacy. And he's, it's just like, okay, you thought you could get away from it, but you can't, it's going to follow you forever. Yeah. And the alderman's there, Swayzak. Oh my God. Wait, can we just, can I just talk about Swayzak for a minute? Oh yes, please. Okay. So first at the scene of the fire where they're, in the garment rescuing the mannequin and the real person in the garment building fire. Swayzak comes, he's the alderman, which is like <laughs> like something more powerful than I ever knew because they make him seem like he's like the president of Chicago. <laughs> like, oh. But he comes in and he's like got all this money and he's like, oh hey, I'm here. And the press is interviewing him. And then we find out that, like, all the firemen hate him because he's been cutting funding and shutting down firehouses. So then Kurt Russell, Stephen, like, takes the opportunity in front of the press to call him out on it. And then Alderman's just like, oh, trying to play it off because he's going to run for mayor and he wants to look good. And then so he goes to Kurt Russell. <laughs> this movie's good, but this line is so bad. I can't <laughs> And then he goes to Kurt Russell and he's like, do you see that faint glow in the corner of your eye or something? And he's like, that's your career dissipation light. And it's been overdrive or something. And I'm like, okay, I think that was supposed to be like a cool line, but it's not well written. It's poorly delivered. It's clumsy. Like it's trying way too hard. But isn't the Alterman trying way too hard? Okay. I guess you're right. Because also, uh, Ron, is his name Don or Ron? Robert De Niro's character. Well, so Robert De Niro comes in and he's the investigator, the arson investigator. And one of the first things he says is pretty fancy shoes for an alderman (laughs) to the alderman. Mm -hmm. Then later when Kurt Russell is walking away from Swayzak, Kurt Russell says, those shoes are like fucking butter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, I love that he knows a good buttery leather. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I feel like maybe that line was a demonstration of the alderman's self-inflation. Okay. That makes sense, I guess, since it came yeah. from a person. That would be a terrible line. Yeah, it's like it. Like I took it as, oh my god, this alderman is so cheesy. Like he thinks he's he's like the guy who in the seventies would wear a white belt and white shoes. Hey, and a gold chain. <laughs> what? No, that, that was like a that was a stereotype back in the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes me think of Mister Furley from Three Scopity. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so the alderman's a terrible jerk, and then they're calling him out on it. And then yeah. we see um that's the scene. Well, earlier we saw Jennifer Jason Lee, who's named Jennifer <laughs> TV. <laughs> so Jennifer, they couldn't even think of it. I always think about that <laughs> whenever they have the same name. <laughs> um so we find out that like she dated William Baldwin a few years ago and um, he'd been back in town for a few months and hadn't even like gotten in contact with her. So she was kind of salty about that. And then we find out that she works for the alderman. So she's like high powered and she wants him to come work for the alderman as like some kind of liaison or something. He ends up working with Robert De Niro. Assist. He, um, they uh, the alderman offers him a job to assist Robert De Niro, the arson investigator. So really, he would be training to be an arson investigator. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a direct 
action against Stephen. Oh. Dividing brothers. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's what the alderman was conniving. I can see that. Brian takes him up on the offer after the mannequin debacle. What I liked about Brian was whenever the alderman approached him and he was like, you know, Brian, you're a hero. Brian was like, that's all, that newspaper article is all wrong. I rescued a mannequin. He took full responsibility. And I was like, that's really cool. Like that shows who he is, you know. Mm -hmm. Then he ends up taking the job the first place that Robert De Niro and Brian go is to flammable lefters parole Mm -hmm. human. (laughs) And this guy says things like the fire is its own animal. Which is true. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's an elemental Ronald is Donald Sutherland. So again, not too big of a departure. (laughs) (laughs) And he looks kind of normal. He's wearing like a suit, but he's got this big stripe of scar in his hair. And he's talking. It's like someone you would see at like church, the way he talks to you. He's got like this, like false pleasantness to his voice all the time. And he seems like really happy for no reason. And he's just like, oh yeah. And he calls Robert De Niro shadow. Mm-hmm. Because one of the fires that Ronald set, um, Robert De Niro was there, and there was an explosion, and it was like so bright that it left the like imprint of Robert De Niro on the wall. So that's why he calls him Shadow. And he, Robert De Niro, has all these scars on his back and his stomach from that fire, and he rescued Ronald from the fire. Yes, right? uh, yes, he did. They're bonded for life. Yeah. So Ronald seems okay on surface level when he's talking to the parole board. He can keep it together. Mm -hmm. And every year, Robert De Niro has to go to like contest his um, release because he keeps coming up for parole and he's pretty good at fooling people. Mm -hmm. And He's like telling the parole board, yes, I'm sorry for what I did and I'll never do it again. The psychiatrist is like pretty much thinks that he's rehabilitated and they're all going to agree to let him go. And then Robert De Niro pulls out his like pulls out his secret weapon, which is a baby doll that's all burned. And he's like, Ronald, tell him about this doll. What did you do? What did you do, little girl that owned this? And he's like, I burned her. <laughs> you should have seen the demented look that you just got on your face when you said that. It's great. What will you do if you go? I'll burn things. <laughs> I would burn it. And then the whole world's just like, oh shit. So they're like, you're going back in. And Robert De Niro's like, see you next year, Ronald. Mm-hmm. but it's really that way like so many people can keep it together and you don't know unless you like specifically get to the point of like what is their pathology it can stay hidden and I can see how people definitely get fooled to like let Ronald back out into society so luckily Robert De Niro was there to <laughs> to trigger him yes yeah this scene also establishes that Robert De Niro carries a paper bag around with him a lot <laughs> with a burnt baby doll <laughs> or a sandwich <laughs> I didn't notice that he also has an old car that doesn't work very well mm-hmm. and I was like I feel like Columbo is totally the inspiration for Robert De Niro in this movie oh, I can see that the hair even some hairstyle and stuff Hmm. Yeah. Oh, and then in this scene, we find out also that Ronald set the fire that ended up killing Brian's dad and Stephen's dad. Yes. Yes. And he was there watching and he saw baby Brian there watching his dad die. Ronald really is flammable lector. 
because mm-hmm. he talks to Brian about how the fire is its own animal. And he's like, did the fire look you in the eyes that day, Brian? The day I set your father alight. <laughs> did the fire stare into your soul? And then Brian, like, kind of flinches where you can tell, like, that it did. Mm-hmm. And he's like, that's what I thought. I looked it up. Silence of the Lambs and this movie, Backdraft, came out. They both came out in 91. Oh, wow. So they're not, like, one isn't, like, copying the other sort of where it's like, it's like Silence of the Lambs only in a fire station. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. But I was like, what's what's going on with 1991 that we're conferring with criminals mm. for insights into other criminals? It's actually good. Oh yeah, totally. I'm not I love that stuff. Okay, so one thing that we need to establish is like the whole theme of the movie. It's the night when they first like find out what company they're in. It's like the very beginning of the movie, basically when William Baldwin finds out he's going to be a firefighter and they're all celebrating. And then they see like uh, fire trucks going by and they follow it. He and Tim like both go to the scene of the fire and there's been an explosion. It's just like this guy walks up to his front door in this really nice house in Chicago and everything seems fine. But then we see like a little bit of smoke stuck back up under the door. Right. And then we hear that like, yes. With it, and then I felt then I could feel like myself getting really nervous. And I was oh, like, yeah, and then he opens the door, and then there's just like, and then it makes that really cool sound again. And then you just see yeah. this fireball coming at him, and it blasts him across his yard, like through the windshield of his Porsche. <laughs> and that's the first fire that they that they go to, and that's when. Brian Percy is his brother Stephen that night. Mm-hmm. Stephen, they're like leading the firefighting at that scene. And um, so then they find out that like it's happening again, these weird explosions where it's like the explosion puts the fire out. So it doesn't end up causing a lot of damage. And then mm-hmm. it happens to like another person and another person. And that's what specifically like the alderman really wants these solved. He's like, Really, really worried about these for some reason. We've already established that the alderman's like a terrible person and that he's been shutting down fire stations and putting firemen in danger because they're short-staffed. And so more of them have ended up dying in dangerous situations that they wouldn't have been in otherwise. And then we find out that the alderman is linked to the two people who have died so far. And then there's another fire that they go to where Stephen and Tim are kind of like taking the lead and Adcox is like let me run the hoses or let me go first and Stephen's like no I'm showing Tim and we're going to do this and then there's an explosion and like another backdraft and Tim the young gung-ho guy gets burnt very very yeah it's gross basically melts to his face oh my god it's so sad and terrible and he's disfigured he almost dies but he does end up surviving it sounds like but then everyone is looking at steven like you let this happen you're supposed to be the leader we wanted to wait till there were more people here and he wouldn't let us so they're making him feel responsible for what happened to tim and then kurt russell just feels like really bad and really isolated and alienated because the guys are turning mm-hmm. against him and that's basically all that he has because he's separated from his wife yeah it really is all he has his brother just left him too robert and is talking to the alderman and the alderman's like what about what are you gonna find out what happened i can't like i can't believe they got holcomb now too and then robert is like you didn't release the name of the third victim yet how did you know who it was yeah. Oh, and then we find out that basically the alderman is linked to all the three victims and they all own this company together, like Lakeside Dynamics. 
and they're closing down fire stations and turning them into community centers. And then the lakeside dynamics gets the construction contract. So they get all the money. Jennifer Jason Lee is what helps like break this open because she gets files from him and shares it with the police officers. So then they're able, or the firemen, so they're able to bust him. At first, because the alderman knows the name of the third victim, suspicion automatically falls to him that maybe he's paying somebody to start these fires. Mm -hmm. And that the reason that he's cutting back on the fire department is actually to help like cover his crime somehow. Oh, yeah. That was where my mind went. You got to think like the fire people who start fires. I feel like part of the philosophy with the fire is that to work, to fight a fire, you have to understand the fire. It's like, know thy enemy. Mm -hmm. But also there's great respect there. Yeah. For the living creature that is fire. It's not a fight. It's a dance. Ooh. Robert and... Brian cannot figure out what the hell's going on, though. Like, who's setting these fires? Brian goes and talks to... Flammable Lecter. <laughs> he says, I want to know if this little kid wants to be just like his dad. And he's doing the same thing where it's like, you need to tell me about yourself before I give you any information. Mm -hmm. But really what he's doing is like, getting off on reliving Ugh. the fire he started that killed Brian's dad. Ugh, you're right. And it's really gross. And I'm like, Ronald, I need to see your hands. Okay, buddy, we need these hands up on the table at all times. <laughs> Cause it's kind of weird and gross. <laughs> it was disturbing. <laughs> the guy who's starting the backdraft fires is like, this person, they know him real well, but won't let him loose. They don't love the fire. And so Ronald's like, hey, Brian, who doesn't love the fire? Mm -hmm. And then the first person, unfortunately, the first person Brian thinks of is Stephen, his brother. Because he had those chemicals sitting on his boat earlier in the movie. Mm -hmm. and it's the same chemical that you use to start a backdraft. So he goes and confronts him, and the whole time it's just like, it's so clearly not Stephen. Mm -hmm. But also, like, you would have to check it out, because those chemicals are sitting right there, and it's not like they're common chemicals. Right. But because... Brian comes to visit Stephen. Stephen understands. Hey, wait a second. Adcox gave me these chemicals to keep on the boat. Mm -hmm. So he knows immediately who it is. And it's like, don't go to the fire with this guy, please. Like, because he goes into the fire with Adcox mm -hmm. to confront him while the fire is burning. <laughs> and yikes. <laughs> That's like a real housewives move. Like not knowing when to have the confrontation. That's like a total real housewives move of being like, are you now while we're fighting a burning fire all around us? Like, maybe wait till after. Real quickly, in another way that Brian finds out who it is. So he's actually going to the fire station to check out his brother's locker to see mm -hmm. if there's any evidence in Stephen's locker. And then he sees Adcox, who's just gotten out of the shower, another shower scene. And um, he sees this burn mark on Adcox's left shoulder. And he remembers that, like, just the other night, they were going to Alderman Swayzak's house, and they were attacked. And he held the guy who was attacking him up against a burning outlet. So then he knows, like, oh, my God, he's the one. Adcox sees him seeing him, so then Adcox knows that he knows. Yes. And then Adcox sees Stephen and Brian talking outside the fire station, so then he knows that Stephen knows. But Stephen doesn't know that he knows. Yeah. So he feels okay going into the fire with him, but really Adcox is on to them. 
And they're having like this big confrontation, yeah, on top of a burning building. And it's like everyone's getting off the roof because the roof is collapsing, but they're still there like fighting and explaining why Adcox is like, I had to do it because they were killing our brothers and I was just doing it to protect us, you know, and to send them a message. I had to do it. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I kind of get why he was doing it. And he was doing it in such a way that it would only affect the specific person he was targeting. The explosion would put the fire out so that it wouldn't spread. Yeah. Like he was, mm-hmm. his intentions were good. <laughs> Maybe I can't say that, but he <laughs> did a good job of keeping it contained yeah. to specific targets yeah. until Tim went into that door that he shouldn't have gone into. And Stephen had tried to stop him, but you know, you can't hear everything's so loud. Mm-hmm. So Adcox knew that he had set up this backdraft and he still let all of his friends like go into it yeah i just can't imagine being mad at someone enough to set them on fire Mm -hmm. so the behavior seems like extreme i'd say it's extreme i mean i just am gonna still think of it as he was just doing it to protect his brethren so you think it's a legitimate like loyalty Mm-hmm. It's like the you go, we go. That's what I think. But then I think that once he knew what was going on and he still let Steven and Tim go ahead and just listened and manned the hoses instead, then then he lost me. Like Because then right. it wasn't you go, we go. He was like basically letting them sacrifice themselves so that he didn't get caught. What if but, like someone else came to the door, like the cleaning lady, and she got backdrafted instead? Exactly. If you're willing to kill people, that you also end up choosing yourself over others, and ultimately, there were a couple opportunities where Adcox could have chosen, like you were saying with Stephen and Tim. Actually, he could have ran at the alderman's house and in the fire at the end of the movie, because that would have lured his brethren are out of the burning house mm-hmm. or out of the burning building. But instead he chose to fight them in an attempt to escape and not get caught. Right. And he was leaving them like incapacitated inside of this house that was about to blow up. Okay. He's terrible. <laughs> but he thinks he's fighting this like noble just cause Mm -hmm. but I think he got addicted to the power there's no noble route in revenge because as soon as you try to get revenge like as soon as you start that plan you're on a power trip yeah you're saying that I know exactly best And you're also saying that I'm entitled to have undue influence over someone else. You know, something else I just thought of that Mm -hmm. he was saying at one point in the movie when they were, he was explaining why he had done everything. I think he said like my sister-in-law or someone worked in the office and she like saw the files and knew what was going on. And that's how he knew the people to target. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, wait, you already knew this. You already knew like files existed that could prove this. You could have gone that route. You know what I mean? Just take it to the newspaper. Yeah. You could have done that. He was just like, no one would believe me or something like that. But it's It's like, like, maybe try before you blow up a bunch of people. But also you have access to the papers that are concrete proof. Mm-hmm. And nobody at the news, the Chicago Tribune or whatever is going to care about this schleppy alderman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So really should have gone about it a different way. All right. If, if anything, the press is already out for this alderman because he's so obnoxious. For real. 
Yeah, so I think Adcox is just totally full of it, and he's on a power trip. It's like every holy war. It has nothing to do with a righteous cause, and it has everything to do with power. And here's just another example on a small scale. Mm-hmm. By this point in the movie, the brothers are like starting to bond finally. Mm-hmm. And at this last fire, they do like fall through and like the ceiling and Billy Baldwin falls into like this elevator shaft, which is like combining two of the worst things ever, like drowning and burning to death. He's about to do one of the two. Yeah. It was awful. And then he's screaming and screaming. And then finally his brother somehow hears him and rescues him. And they're about to make it out. And then Adcox come and hits Billy with an axe and like knocks him out. Or hits, yeah, right? And then so Steven's fighting uh-huh. him. Uh-huh. It's like yeah. getting to the point where like Adcox and Steven are then having a showdown. Because now he sees that he's willing to just like kill in cold blood at this point to protect himself. Because he thought he was killing um, Liam Baldwin to leave him there in the fire. So they have a showdown, and in the end, Stephen ends up like falling on this metal railing that's broken, and it impales him. Mm-hmm. And you think he's going to be okay. William Baldwin does like all these things, heroic things, to like help put the mm-hmm. fire, keep the fire away from him, so they can try to rescue mm-hmm. him. William Baldwin is like, "I'm sorry, I ever thought that it was you." Like, it's terrible that he would accuse mm-hmm. his brother of setting these fires that ended up killing firefighters because Stephen's whole life is the fire company. Yeah. So Stephen's like, it's okay, I understand. And they're like reconciling, but you can see that Stephen's like doing worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't make it. And then yeah. I, re- I cried so much <laughs> when I saw this movie. The people in the ambulance are doing, like, the worst CPR ever. I don't know if CPR was different in the 90s. <laughs> okay. I Okay, I had questions. Um, <laughs> because they tried to put a mask over Steven. I presume, presumably for oxygen. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, if they had just, if the, what, EMTs had just insisted did he put that oxygen mask on? Would he be alive today? It would have helped. So, did you notice that all of the firefighters smoke cigarettes? Yeah, since they do it like while they're still at the scene of the fire, while everything's mm. still smoking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it's like, what's the difference at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's also sort of like shows that the firemen love fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they want it with them all the time. Stephen died. <laughs> yeah, he did. And then there's the funeral. Yes, it's like a huge funeral. So they have all the firemen there. Adcock died too. Playing. Oh, yeah, Adcock's died too. Yeah. And Stephen says, don't tell them about Adcox. Yes. So they just chalk it up to a mystery. Mm-hmm. And Adcox gets to die with dignity. Right. How do you feel about that? Well, I understand it because it's you go, we go. It's showing that Stephen is legitimate in his talk of loyalty. Wait, you're right, because the part where they die, or where they, where Stephen ends up ultimately getting the fatal wound, is that Adcox is falling off this railing, and Stephen's holding onto him to try to save him, even though he knows that he's the one that has done this. And Adcox is like, just let me go. And then Stephen's like, you go, we go. And then Billy is watching while they both do go and they fall. So Stevens are tried to save Adcox, even mm-hmm. though he knew that he tried to kill him. Adcox has tried to kill Stephen, Brian, and Robert Genuino. 
But then I was thinking, what about his own family, like his own son? He's putting Adcocks over his own son, like he's making him father. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't believe in blind loyalty whatsoever. Like, I, I actually think that obviously it wouldn't be good for the department. One of their, it, it's found out that one of their own is a firebug. Right. However, it's a fucking murder. So, I mean, you, you can't be making exceptions for people. Like, he could have let go of Adcox and let him die to save himself because he has, like, an ex wife and a child. And he knows Adcox is a murderer. So he should have just let him go. But he didn't have to tell the details of what Adcox had done. Like he could have still protected his reputation, but I kind of resent that he let himself die for Adcox. Mm-hmm. It was the wrong move. Yeah. I, I felt like that was drama. What I wanted to happen was that we see the funeral procession and we think, Oh my God, it's Steven, you know, Steven died. Like he didn't make it out of the ambulance, but then we get to the funeral. And we pan in and there's only one coffin and it's Adcox. Yeah. And Steven's standing there with his brother and his kid. Mm-hmm. Not his wife, though. His wife's still separate in my mm. ideal movie ending. So absolute loyalty keeps really toxic patterns in place. It hurts people. Like Dr. Death. Yeah, like Dr. Death. He could have been stopped so early. That's the end, really, right? Yeah, that's pretty much the end. Uh, Robert De Niro's fine. Yeah, Robert De Niro's fine. He gets impaled on like a wrought iron fence. I know. He's like, kid, I think I got a problem. <laughs> it was like <laughs> fence sticking through his shoulder. <laughs> and that's why he's my favorite character in this movie. <laughs> yeah, and then at the end, we see that William... Baldwin Brian is like sitting in the fire station and he's like looking at the locker. He's got all his gear out. And I think he's just like, am I going to do this or what's, what am I going to do now? Mm-hmm. And he's wearing like a white t-shirt and jeans, which is like my favorite outfit. Maybe that come from this movie too. <laughs> <laughs> then the bell rings and he's like, and he's like called in the action. And then he knows like I'm doing this. And he goes, yeah. And then there's like a newbie on the bus or on the truck with him. And he's like helping him get ready and all of that stuff. And it's like, okay, this is what he's doing now. Continuing the legacy and he'll help mm-hmm. initiate other new people and carry on the family tradition. So that's nice. Yeah. Is that how it ended? Yeah, pretty much. And then um, some music came on. Oh, yeah. and. Isaac walked in and said, that sounds like the poor man, Steve Winwood. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. I meant to look it up because <laughs> I felt like the soundtrack was very lackluster as opposed to what you would expect for this movie. It was at times extremely inappropriate. Like the montage they had earlier in the movie where it was just like fighting fires and doing stuff to establish life at the fire station. Mm -hmm. And it was like, this music is really weird and takes me out of the movie pretty significantly. A lot of like, uh, there were a couple of Bruce Hornsby songs. Bruce Hornsby. It's also strange because the first few songs in the movie were pretty damn good. And Stephen had an eight track. Whenever you put music in the background when people are talking or having activity, it needs to be setting the scene. Sometimes the music's just like, bleh, you don't even notice it back there. It's just sort of like vague background. It's background noise. Yeah. But in this movie, I felt like the music was too loud and also didn't fit. 
It did not fit. It was weird. I don't know who thought Bruce Hornsby was like appropriate for this movie. Nothing maybe they Hornsby, but maybe maybe they wanted to get Bruce Springsteen, but they couldn't afford him. <laughs> they wanted Kenny Loggins because everybody <laughs> wants Kenny Loggins. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't work out. He was doing the soundtrack for Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be so funny. Um, yeah, so this movie, all right. I feel like maybe this is why I've never liked Jennifer Jason Lee, also. Oh yeah. Also not in here, and maybe because I was jealous of her as a child. Yeah. I feel like she's never she, I feel like she never plays anybody but Jennifer Jason Lee. Mm-hmm. And that she has a very flat effect and that Lots. and it that it got worse as she got older yeah I feel like she just like they like are always bothering her like they're always just getting her out of bed and she's like oh okay I have to do this and then she's like let me Ryan I work for the alderman now I work really <laughs> hard for this job you want me to throw it all away I don't want to do that and her face like never moves or changes <laughs> Like, why, I know. why are you here like are you an early adapter of botox <laughs> what's happening right now I feel like um so she was in um fast times at ridgemont high that's probably yeah. thing that she's ever done because it seemed appropriate for that but then yeah. i feel like it never evolved any acting. she's been a disaffected teenager <laughs> since fast times at Ridgemont High and that's like the only thing that she does she's like that worked for me people really liked it so I'm just gonna stick with it yeah and it's like sometimes that's fine and she's in a movie and I'm like yeah that totally works for this movie Mm -hmm. and then other times like in this movie I felt like there was no chemistry I was glad they weren't together I actually thought the people that had the most chemistry were Stephen's estranged wife and Brian, Billy Baldwin. So Rebecca De Mornay and Billy Baldwin, I felt like had the most chemistry. Yeah, like in the future, they might get together. Yeah, like they're going to get together now, mm-hmm. now that Stephen's dead. Yeah. I, I kind of had those thoughts too, but then I was like, that seems wrong. Well, then at the end, too, they're standing there together. And I was like, is this implied or am I just making it up? Because I felt like they had a lot of chemistry. Mm -hmm. And maybe that was an accident. Because sometimes that happens. I think it's weird, though, when because there's a lot of movies where the people that are supposed to be romantically interested in one another have absolutely no chemistry and I'm like don't you guys work that out when you're doing the casting like don't you guys pair the actors together to make sure that they have chemistry then like is that like a studio order because chemistry seems like something that's pretty obvious on the screen um so the movie got like 76 percent on Rotten Tomatoes which is actually good for Rotten Tomatoes oh okay which I, like I said, don't go by that because I disagree with most of theirs. But I was like, I felt proud for the movie. Like, you did. <laughs> so I don't feel like it's a movie that I would rewatch often in any way. But I did enjoy rewatching it. Mm-hmm. I was thinking firefighters are like one of the last established institutions. Hasn't been revealed to be corrupt and terrible mm-hmm. it's like everybody still loves firefighters so at least we have that let our universal love of firefighters unite us as a people would you rather die by fire or by water <laughs> i thought about this surprisingly <laughs> and especially in the scene when he's trapped in the elevator shaft exactly it's it's easy for me now. Um, definitely water. Agreed. 
100% water. <laughs> Anytime there's a movie when people go like spelunking and they're like going into an underwater cave and then they're just like in this tiny space and I'm like, why do you get stuck? What do you get lost? And you're just, <sighs> oh my God, I can't even stand to watch those scenes. But it's like still, at least you're like in water and it's beautiful mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you can just like hopefully just kind of pass out. Right. And it doesn't burn. It doesn't burn your skin. <laughs> I'm pretty sure anyone would choose that, but I'd be interested to hear if someone would choose fire. I know. Let us know at coveriscepodcast.gmail.com. <laughs> fire or water, which are both terrible. Well, um, thank you guys for listening. This summer has been a lot going on. We kind a of hiatus ourselves for a while. Yeah, like, mm, this is happening. Wasn't even like really planned. It just kind of happened, and we just went with it. Yeah, we just needed to. Yeah, we just needed to. And now we're like slowly walking our way back. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, everyone does what they need to do. Exactly. Um. So hopefully, you know, you guys are taking care of yourselves too. Take a break, do some self care if you need it. Yes. Which we all do. Yes. All right. We're going to go. Love you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Cover Your Eyes Podcast. Did it look at you? Did the fire look at you? Black voices are making an impact this month and beyond. Keep listening to discover one of our favorite shows, courtesy of ACAST Recommends. There's a lot of misinformation out there, but the truth remains indisputable. I'm Dr. Rashad Ritchie, and every day I'll be bringing you a full dose of truth on my show, Indisputable. We cover criminal justice, social justice, politics, racism, police brutality, and everything in between. I even make space for conservative voices, but not before they step into the bullpen where I debate them on their policy agenda. In January, I hosted They Called Him Radical, a special tribute to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It features myself, Senator Nina Turner, Ricky Smiley, and Sharon Reed. Together, we reflected on Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy, his real legacy, and considered what we can all do to continue to fight for a better world. Listen to Indisputable and They Called Him Radical on Apple Podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com